Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. This is about infrastructure that can lead to economic growth for a generation. We need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Republicans have a great chance of taking the House in 2022. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It is Monday and it has been a busy one here in Washington. President Joe Biden has been dealing with issues ranging from Haiti to Cuba to gun violence to getting his signature legislation through his own government. Also, did Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband cross a line when he bet on big tech stocks in the week before a congressional panel moved key legislation on big tech? And we go down to Texas for the latest election legislation, although at this very moment, Texas is on its way to D.C. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We've got a lot of great guests today on Sound On, but first... We are going to go down the road from Bloomberg Studios, where Jack and I sit, to the White House, where Bloomberg's White House correspondent, Justin Sink, has been covering a variety of stories today. Justin, thank you, as always, for joining us. I wanted to start with President Biden holding a meeting this afternoon with mayors, police chiefs, and a soon-to-be mayor today to discuss a rise in violence and, and gun violence. And look, Justin, Uh, Jack and I cover Congress. We know that legislation expanding background checks, which is the one big gun legislation that Democrats are really focused on, that's stalled in Congress right now. And the president can only do so much with executive orders. So tell us a little bit, what was the point of the meeting that the White House had today? What message were they trying to send at this point where D.C.'s hands are pretty much tied up in gridlock on this particular issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, well, thanks for having me, but I, I think a big part of this was just um, an effort to be responsive to what, what has been kind of a dramatic spike over the last 18 months or so in terms of violent crime and, and gun crime in, in particular. Um, you're right. The sort of legislative avenues that the White House would like to pursue are, are pretty much locked in the same gridlock that is um, impacting a lot of, of President Biden's agenda. And when you hold only very narrow majorities in, in both houses, um, that's going to be particularly true on, on sticky issues like uh, gun rights. And so what we're seeing today from the White House is them trying to emphasize two things. One was uh, in the coronavirus stimulus legislation that passed earlier this year, there was hundreds of millions of dollars for local governments to hire new uh, police officers, beef up their police force. And there was additional funding for anti-poverty initiatives, job training initiatives, sort of things that go to preventing violence before it happens. And so uh, I think President Biden was trying to tout that in this and let local government officials know that they had those resources available. That's been something the White House has been pushing. 
Justin, can you uh, spell out the significance for us of the meeting with Eric Adams, who uh, I believe has uh, referred to himself essentially as the Biden of Brooklyn, uh, in terms of the political similarities, in terms of exactly where the Democratic Party stands on policing? Uh, what, uh, what, how, how did that meeting with Eric Adams go, and what's the significance of meeting with him? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Eric Adams just clinched uh, the Democratic nomination for mayor a, a couple days ago, and so this is one of his first sort of national stage appearances uh, as potentially the next mayor of New York. And uh, he brought kind of an in- interesting message to it. He was largely supportive, as you might expect, of, of President Biden's agenda. But uh, Adams was sort of uh, arguing, one, that, or in, I guess, indifference to Biden, that rather than spending the money on additional police officers getting hired, that he says he wants New York to be able to use that money for job training programs, for education programs, uh, for assistance uh, to keep uh, people employed and, and, and out of bad situations. And that's something that the president talked about in their meeting uh, himself. And, and I think uh, a way that, that, you know, these two guys who are not, you know, Adams used to be a, in the New York Police Department. Uh, neither he nor Biden was sort of among the Democrats calling for defunding the police, but a sort of third way for them to, to uh, address this issue of gun violence um, as it's sort of cropping up. Yeah, I know that there are a number of more moderate Democrats who are really trying to distance themselves from the idea of defunding the police. They want to be seen as pro-police, as pro-law enforcement, but at the same time, they, they also want to make sure that they are bringing legislation that does put more regulations on, on guns and guns ownership. Justin, I also want to pivot uh, to President Joe Biden also this afternoon, right before that meeting. Uh, we have the sound from him expressing the United States support for the protesters this weekend in Cuba. The Cuban people demanding their freedom from an authoritarian regime. And I don't think we've seen anything like this protest uh, in a long, long time, if, if quite frankly, ever. And this was a, a major protest over the weekend. Thousands of Cubans across the country protesting a lack of food, a lack of medicine, a response to the coronavirus, really sort of uh, something that we haven't seen in the last several decades in that country. You know, Biden and several other lawmakers, they've put out statements in support of these protesters. But Justin, I'm wondering, should we be expecting more from President Biden here on this situation? Yeah, so the White House says that they're sort of evaluating the protests and, and ways that they might uh, be helpful uh, in supporting those protesters and also ways in which uh, they might be able to address sort of some of the underlying concerns that you mentioned, so food insecurity and and uh, coronavirus vaccines are uh, sort of flashpoint issues that, that were involved in this. But there's also sort of a, a political element of this as well, obviously, um, President Biden struggled with Cuban-American voters, particularly in in Florida and Miami-Dade, sort of posting some of the worst numbers that we've seen from Democrats there. And and Republicans have said that this is a real sort of political opportunity. So before the president spoke today, last night you had Senator Rubio, um, who's from Florida, of course, criticizing the administration for not having done enough and for focusing more on 
you know, the COVID element of these protests than the sort of general um, concerns over the authoritarian regime there. And so you heard President Biden today uh, sort of address that specifically. As, so there, there was a bit of addressing the politics. But to your, to your broader and initial question, I'm not sure. Right now, the White House isn't indicating that we're actually going to see a change in policy towards Cuba. Uh, they're just sort of generally saying that they're monitoring it and are supportive of those protesters. So, Justin, I want to follow up on, on what you just alluded to before, because, uh, you know, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel said uh, in a press ca- conference today, actually, he blamed Miami's conservative Cuban-American mafia, in his words. And a- as you alluded to with uh, the comment from Senator Rubio, you know, there's some back and forth about how much of this unrest is over the low coronavirus vaccination rate versus how much can it be tied actually to uh, the tougher sanctions and and restrictions placed on Cuba by the Trump uh, administration. Maybe it's difficult to sum up, but based on what we know right now, how much of this uh, that we're seeing in Cuba can be tied to the the President Trump policies uh, versus the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think some Democrats would certainly argue that that by putting tougher restrictions on Cuba, kind of rolling back some of the things that that President Obama did as he tried to sort of thaw that relationship, that it's made economic conditions worse. But, you know, the the White House is making the point today that on perhaps the biggest flashpoint of this issue, right, the COVID vaccine, Cuba's kind of struck out on their own. They're developing their own vaccine, but not sharing that information with with other countries. And they're not part of COVAX, which is that sort of global system that we've used to distribute uh, COVID vaccines, even to countries that that you certainly wouldn't call us sort of natural allies with. And so um, it's, you know, COVID has been difficult for every nation to navigate. And I think particularly true for for, uh, places like Cuba. And and so we're starting to see some of the um, popular uprising and response to that. Justin, I saw, I I think I alluded to this, Senator Marco Rubio coming out and saying that Biden needed to affirm that he was going to be keeping Trump's restrictions on Cuba in place. At the same point, you have the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Congressman Gregory Meeks, coming out and saying that uh, Biden needs to lift some of these restrictions that Trump put in place. At this point, does the presence of these protests put more pressure on Biden to finally act uh, one way or the other or make some sort of definitive statement on what he's going to do with some of the additional restrictions we saw uh, former President Trump put on Cuba before he exited office. Yeah, so I think you make two good points. One is that, uh, as with many things in Washington, this has turned into sort of a, uh, a litmus test where, you know, Republicans believe that it, it reinforces their policies and Democrats believe it reinforces uh, their policies. Um, but yes, I, I do think that this is pushing sort of China or, or Cuba up the priority list in a way that it hadn't been before. I, I remember a couple months ago, Jen Psaki was asked about, uh, re, you know, sort of reevaluating Cuba policy in, in terms of how much of a priority that was. And, and she said it was, she sort of admitted that it was fairly do- low down the list. So um, I, I think that it especially if we see a sustained protest, but because this is the first protest that we've seen um, really in in more than a decade like this in Cuba, it's making it more of a priority for them. Uh, Can I ask a a real quick one, Justin, just uh, elsewhere in the Caribbean, what are our expectations on troop levels, U.S. troop levels in Haiti after the assassination of the Haitian president? What do we know so far about uh, U.S. troop levels there? 
So we know that the request has been made by the by the Haitians. Um, right now, the Pentagon says they're they're evaluating that issue. Uh, the White House sent a team of experts down uh, a couple days ago. I think they actually got back last night. They briefed the president this morning, and and so they haven't ruled it out. But administration officials say right now that the, that it's not um, something that they're actively sort of engaging in. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us from the White House, taking the time to catch us up on everything going on there today. Tomorrow, we are also going to have Congressman Mauro Diaz-Blart on the show talking more about Cuba. Uh, he's from Florida. He knows Cubans. He can talk pretty eloquently about the situation there. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. All right, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here on a hot, humid Washington Monday with Emily Wilkins, my co-host. Uh, we've got Aaron Brown on the line. He's a former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management. I want to ask him about his opinion piece uh, on Bloomberg today uh, titled Pelosi's $5 million option win is not what it seems. Uh, Aaron, thank you for joining us. I'm trying to distill this down to something simple enough so that it works for a radio audience and also a, a Washington layman such as myself. Now, to give us the background, on June 18th, the issue here is on June 18th, Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, exercised call options on 4,000 shares of Alphabet Incorporated, which is the parent parent company of uh, Google. Uh, that's worth $4 million, meaning he is exercising the option to uh, get these shares that are now worth $4 million uh, under an agreement uh, that gained him about $4.8 million. And this came a week or so before those house uh, markups of big, big tech antitrust bills. Now, you lay out the argument that the fact that he did this is, is not indicative of any kind of insider trading concerns or anything like that. But if you could give us the 20-second the version of you know how you would explain this to a five-year-old, uh, that would be extremely valuable to our, uh, our, our audience. What happened here, and why do you think this is, this is not really as concerning as, uh, as some of the headlines may, might make it sound? Sure, Jack. Um, first of all, it was $10 million of Alphabet stock, not $4 million. Right. Um, and yeah, and he, he owned options to buy the for $4.8 million, which is why he got the $5.2 million profit. Um, but the key thing left out of the headlines is that the options expired on June 18th. He had no choice but to exercise them. I mean, mm -hmm. to fail to exercise them would be just burning up $5.2 million. Um, 
the other option he had is he could have uh, sold the options, and he could have sold the options for about $5.2 million to somebody else. But he was either going to exercise them or sell them on June 18th. There was no, uh, that's no indication of his market position. It was, it was a non-event. He had, basically, he owned 4,000 4, shares of Alphabet stock before the exercise and after the exercise in economic terms. Right. There was just no difference. Um, what he does is something a lot of investors do. He buys long-term options, about 18-month options on tech stocks, and he does this regularly, and uh, it's a sensible strategy if you want that kind of exposure. There's absolutely no inside information he could have had. Anything Nancy Pelosi could have known on June 18th that would have uh, you know, made any difference to the strategy. The, the good call he made, the decision he made, was back on February 27th of 2000 when he bought the options. That was a great buy. Mm-hmm. But on June 18th, he just mechanically exercised because otherwise it would have expired. So I, I don't mean to excessively play devil's advocate, but to get at sort of what uh, what the issues behind the Stock Act requirements on, on transparency requirements for members of Congress and their, their family, I, I would ask, okay, so he essentially bet on Alphabet. It paid off. Is there a concern that, all right, Speaker Pelosi doesn't share inside information about what's going to happen, and nothing particularly surprising happened anyway at that markup of those bills. Uh, but is there is there a concern that, you know, if if something bad was coming down the pipeline, if Democrats were planning to take an even more aggressive antitrust position uh, than the public might have known, then Paul Pelosi probably would have known that. And the lack of uh, bad news coming uh, probably gives him even more confidence. And again, I don't mean to stretch, and and that would not even be an accusation of insider trading to my knowledge, but there there seems to be a a little bit of an issue of if you're owning these shares or if you are involved in a, a call option coming up, it, it would probably be nice to live in the same house as Nancy Pelosi. Is that a, a valid concern in your view? <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, the reason I say no in this particular case is he did nothing on June 18th. Mm-hmm. If, he had ex- if he had sold the options, if he had gotten rid of his Apple exposure, and, I'm sorry, Alphabet exposure, mm-hmm. and if Alphabet had gone down a lot in the next week, yeah, then you have some concerns. You say, hmm, you know, he made a, you know, a call that looks like it was surprisingly good, but he did nothing. He just, you know, held on to the, he he just exercised the options. Um, So he didn't change his economic position at all. And uh, alphabet stock went up slightly. So, so there's no indication here. What is the red flag? The red flag is when people trade short dated out of the money calls. So if he had gone out and he had bought an Apple call, I'm sorry, an alphabet call at, you know, $3,000 and he had, uh, you know, bought it for a week, and then something, some really big news for Apple, uh, Alphabet came out in that week, yeah, then we would have some insider trading concerns, and the SEC would get involved and take a look. But when you buy long-dated at-the-money calls, um, and you do this regularly, um, you just can't have any concern. Now, as a practical matter, there is no way you can prevent information from leaking. And, and I'm not saying anything bad about Nancy Pelosi or her husband, but it's absolutely impossible to completely segregate information. So, yeah, living in the same house with Nancy Pelosi, you're going to pick up some information that could help you in the market. But we just have to concentrate on the trades that are suspicious. We can't, you know, if somebody's making right. normal trades, uh, you know, you just have to live with that. 
Sure. Uh, Aaron Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Aaron's a former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management with that p- opinion piece earlier today. This is Emily Wilkins back with Jack, my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick filling in today. Uh, we are now going to be turning to the issue that is happening across the country, both in state legislatures and at the federal level on voting. Joining us on the phone is Colorado Secretary of State Janet Griswold. She is also chair of the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I wanted to start off maybe by just going to the 30,000 foot view here. I mean, we have this bill that is now being advanced in the Texas State Legislature. You've seen both the House and the Senate go ahead and advance it. Mind you, these are Republicans voting for it. Democrats are very opposed to this bill. And they say that it's only going to make it harder for individuals to cast votes. Take us through some of the things in this bill, because I'm seeing a lot of different things here with uh, restrictions on mail-in ballots, new voter ID requirements, but I'm also seeing some provisions that would add extra time for early voting. Well, first off, thank you for having me and thank you for covering this uh, tremendously important topic. Um, First and foremost, Texas needs more voting access, not less. Texas is one of the hardest places already to cast a ballot in the entire country. Uh, And legislators on both sides of the aisle should be expanding the right to vote, not restricting it. Uh, the bill, as introduced on July 8th, uh, would threaten election officials with prosecution for enacting procedures to meet local community needs. Uh, it uh, uh, threatens with prosecution, uh, uh, giving assistance to voters at voting locations and with mail ballots, uh, restricts uh, some of the access to, to be able to cast the ballot, restricts drive-through, um, drop boxes, a whole host of things. Um, And I think it's worth noting that a lot of the uh, new features that are now going to be restricted if this bill does pass were implemented in response to the pandemic and and were proven to work. That's why we saw just such high turnout all the way across the nation uh, with the expansion of things like drop boxes, uh, uh, mail ballots and early voting. And what we're seeing in Texas right now, this is so incredible what's unfolding. So Democrats obviously don't have the votes to block this legislation from going through. But what they are trying to do is deprive Republicans of a quorum. So the process would have to grind to a halt. And Democrats aren't just walking out of a state house. We have seen reporting that Democrats uh, from Texas state legislature are actually going to be flying to Washington, D.C., where they're going to try and stay and try to impress upon federal lawmakers the importance of passing voting rights legislation. I mean, Secretary, this clearly is something that people are very passionate about for lawmakers to come that far, uh, to come to D.C. I mean, for How do you see this sort of playing out? Because it seems like there are very strong feelings on both sides. What happens in the next year and a half before the 2022 midterms on this issue? Well, I, I think the, the Texas Democratic legislators' actions meet the urgency of the time. Um, what we are seeing right now is the largest coordinated attack on our democracy and, and voting rights in, in recent history. And the irony of it all is it comes on the heels of the most secure and one of the, the highest participated in elections in recent history, and that was the 2020 general. 
And those high participation rates weren't only among Democrats. It was for Democrats and Republicans. Um, but there are some elected officials, whether they sit in uh, the U.S. Senate or in state legislatures across the nation, who did not like the outcome of the election. Uh, and so now they're trying to roll back Americans' freedoms of choosing our elected officials. Um, and it's uh, horrendous. We're seeing pro-style voter suppression, over 400 bills in 47 states, uh, the stripping of authority of secretaries of state, fake audits, all these different things to try to undermine confidence in elections and suppress the vote. Um, so I think it's good that the Texas uh, Democratic legislators are doing everything they can to preserve the freedoms of, of Texans, preserve the right to vote. Um, and ultimately, we need Congress to act. Uh, Congress must act to save our democracy and ensure that every eligible American, regardless of their zip code, color of skin, or the amount of money in their bank account, has access to safe and secure mm -hmm. elections. Secretary Griswold, I, I want to ask specifically about the issue of voter ID because that's been a, a really years-long national focus for particularly Republicans, and yet it it does have a lot of support around the country. Uh, if you look at polling, even at times among Democrats, there was a Monmouth University poll that came out late last month showing actually 62% support among Democrats polled as opposed to 34% opposed for voter ID, even among voters who say they're concerned about restrictions on, on voting. And we heard from uh, Senator Joe Manchin that maybe a national voter ID law could be a trade-off uh, if there are other measures expanding the ability to vote. Where do you stand on the the idea of voter ID uh, and and is that as much of a, uh, a damaging thing as Democrats have claimed? in recent years? Well, I, I think um, with elections, it's really in uh, the specifics. So, for example, if you only allow one type of ID, you may be uh, making it much harder for Americans to vote. Uh, here in Colorado, we actually accept 16 forms of ID. Um, mm -hmm. And after someone has already voted a mail ballot, uh, the, the first time we then do signature verification to make sure that the person voting is indeed who they, they say they are. Um, and our system works perfectly, um, not, not perfectly well, not just perfectly well. It works great. Uh, we lead the nation in turnout. We've also been commended even by Trump's former DHS secretary as, as leading in cybersecurity and in election security. I think the bigger picture is is the fact that there are some Republican legislators, both at the federal and local level, who are outright lying about the 2020 election to take away access, to force Americans to jump through hoops, signing up multiple times to get an absentee ballot, uh, to force them to drive far distances, uh, targeting specifically black voters and voters of color, taking away access that those communities use. That shouldn't be allowed. We need to see across this nation, every eligible American have access to mail ballots, early voting, same-day voter registration, all the tools that were really adopted uh, uh, to a large extent last year. That worked. Right. Um, we did. We, we did see so much of that Colorado. of that last year coming out, and and definitely keeping an eye on what will happen with the elections. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, Secretary, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy Monday. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my co-host Emily Wilkins. We have got Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us on the phone as well. They are our old friends, our Bloomberg Politics 
contributors. Uh, guys, wrapping up the show, we're going to talk a little bit about what is coming up in Congress, what's coming up this week in Washington. But first, let's start off with our, uh, I guess you could call it the, the sound on obit section. I thought this was very notable news this morning. Edwin Edwards died this morning. Uh, the four-term Louisiana governor was, to say the least, a colorful character. Uh, he was 93. Uh, I guess a couple notes on Edwin Edwards, and I'm curious to see what uh, Rick and Jeannie's thoughts are, I guess, on his legacy. One, you may have heard his bizarre quotes, his very colorful quotes. You may have heard this one uh, when he ran in the 80s and actually did win. Quote, the only way I can lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with either a dead girl or a live boy, which sounds worse when you say it out loud uh, than reading it on paper. Uh, <laughs> second, he he uh, served nearly a decade in prison after his four terms as governor for extorting companies that uh, applied for casino licenses. And there, there really was sort of this shadow of uh, corruption allegations throughout much of his career. Fun fact, I don't know if people remember this, even in his 80s after he got out of prison, he couldn't legally, according to state law, run for governor again. So in 2014 he ran for Congress and actually came in first in their jungle primary initially and then lost uh, to now Congressman Garrett Graves. We could talk about all sorts of trivialities and, and uh, weird stuff about the career of Edwin Edwards. But I'm curious, Rick, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting to sort of look at the legacy of a guy f for a long time who was sort of that uh, New Deal populist Southern Democrat. What how, how would you sum up, Rick, the career of Edwin Edwards? Yeah, I think I think he was a, a man way ahead of his time. I think he uh, fell 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 in the limelight of Huey Long, another uh, Louisiana populist who really created that movement in Louisiana. And, and when I was a young man growing up in politics in Alabama, uh, Edwin Edwards was kind of this inspirational figure in Louisiana. And, and we followed him quite a bit because he was conservative in many ways. His populism echoes a lot of what Donald Trump was doing in the last uh, four years of office. And so he maybe was a man ahead of his time, but he was really known as the Cajun King. He he was full of life and 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 really invented the process of these crazy things he said in the '91 race against David Duke, who you know was part of the KKK. He said, "We're both wizards under the sheets," <laughs> leading to the fact that he was a ladies' man. And yeah, the the uh, that that was the other one. I, I had a hard time picking uh, the colorful Edward Edwin Edwards quote, but the uh, the the only thing we have in common is that we've both been wizard wizards under the sheets. Is uh, a, another really notable one. What uh, is it about Louisiana and turning out? <laughs> politicians. Oh, you're thinking of John just, Kennedy. I'm who's, absolutely yeah. thinking of, of John Kennedy, who if you ever, <laughs> if you are ever a Senate reporter and you would like to get a very colorful quote, I highly recommend finding Senator Kennedy and asking him about anything. But The mouth from the South. Oh, man. <laughs> he's extremely quotable. We have joked that, you know, John Kennedy, uh, the current senator uh, of Republican of Louisiana, always carries that briefcase around with him. We have joked over in the Senate that eventually that he's going to drop it, it's going to fall open, and it's just going to be a bunch of one-liners. It's not going to be legislation. It's just going to be his joke books. Um, Jeannie, I believe Jeannie is back with us. Jeannie Shanzano, uh, how, do you, how do you sum up the legacy of Edwin Edwards? I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, too. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Sorry, I've had technical difficulties. <laughs> um, so I'm not quite sure I heard the last bit of it, but, you know, 
I think as, as we've seen populism, you know, of late with people like President Trump and, and, you know, Bernie Sanders and others, this was, you know, one of the final populist Democratic governors like Huey Long and Earl Long. And, you know, and I keep I, I think I heard you guys talking about some of his quotes, some of them you just can't repeat on the air in good company. But he did have quite a mouth on him. And I think about President, some of President Trump's offhanded comments and, and there's sort of a similarity there. So as we look ahead to uh, what's coming up this week on this Monday, we do have some news that I, I was going to touch on this regardless uh, on the, the difficulties of funding the government. And I actually just saw uh, right before we got back from the break, uh, the Senate Appropriations Chairman Patrick Leahy is introducing a new emergency spending bill for the security needs of the Capitol. I know this isn't quite as big as a, a full spending deal. This is only a $3.7 billion bill, but I do think this is quite notable as it relates to the response to January 6th. Uh, and, uh, you know, Senator Leahy has warned that the Capitol Police here actually are uh, at risk of, of uh, running out of funds for salaries as soon as August. I'm curious uh, how this gets wrapped up with the sort of stalemate over how to address the, the January 6th riot. Um, Rick, do you see that much of a path forward? Obviously, we're, we're seeing what's happening in the House with a, a House committee on January 6th. But I just wanted to bring this up because this is news just this afternoon on a new attempt to at least fund the Capitol Police uh, and, and those types. Is there much middle ground on at least those basics, in your opinion, Rick? Yeah, I do think there are. Uh, I've just seen a report come across that uh, Vice Chairman Shelby, the Republican ranking on appropriations, uh, has issued his own uh, pricing, I think over six hundred uh, uh, million dollars for the uh, funding of the the police in the Capitol. So it seems like both teams, Republican and Democrat alike, understand that they really need to get something done on this, and so we're moving toward some kind of compromise to get something out right away as a supplemental on on the existing appropriation. I'm looking into the details of the supplemental, as are many of our stellar Bloomberg and Bloomberg government reporters. Uh, one of our excellent defense reporters, Roxana Triton, points out that there is actually a spot in this supplemental for police for Afghan special immigrant visas. And this is coming as the U.S. is withdrawing from Afghanistan. But they also want to make sure that they're not leaving behind Afghanis that helped the U.S. military while they were there, be it as, as translators as individuals who help really work and, and provide for the U.S. military. And there's been a big debate about making sure that they're able to come to the U.S. And it looks like at this point the bill includes $100 million in emergency aid for Afghan refugees. Um, and it estimates uh, that potentially half a million Afghans will be fleeing their homes in coming months or many more depending on the pace of Taliban gains. And maybe that's sort of a, a good topic now to, to touch on, Rick. I mean, as we pull out of Afghanistan, um, obviously this is a, going to be a continuing story in the next month as we see what the impact will be on the country as the U.S. leaves. I mean, is there any indication at this point, you know, sort of what the future of Afghanistan is going to look like? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of reporting right now around not just these uh, translators and people who the president has focused on getting uh, out of the country and pre-placed in other places where we have military bases and installations, but there are thousands of contractors and Americans deployed all across 
Afghanistan who are going to have to be pulled out of there while there's still a security envelope uh, that makes it something other than the, 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 the remembrances we all have from the fall of Saigon and helicopters taking off from the embassy roof. I mean, that's the one thing I know this administration is trying to avoid, but there's a lot of work to be done if they're going to get there before the end of next month. I think it, it actually is a, a little bit of a sign here. It, it, we're seeing so many instances of the Afghanistan pullout making a variety of things in Congress difficult to negotiate. Uh, this just came in uh, from our colleague Eric Wasson over at Bloomberg News, who's at the Senate right now, who caught Senator Richard Shelby, who is uh, Leahy's counterpart. Senator Leahy released this new version of a bill, uh, really just to fund capital security, but includes that measure on Afghan visas. Uh, and Senator Shelby says this is the wrong direction. That doesn't need to be uh, included in this bill. Uh, this is not the kind of bill to address that kind of thing. And, you know, we were planning on uh, using this segment to just look ahead at the at the week ahead. And I, you know, I've been watching the negotiations over government funding leading up to the uh, September 30th deadline and uh, the Afghanistan pullout uh, has really complicated those because there's this uh, sort of intractable divide over how much money to spend on the military. You have progressives calling for an outright cut, uh, Republicans calling for uh, a much more significant increase than uh, President Biden has proposed. That is my number one thing to look forward to uh, this week as they work through their appropriations bills and struggle uh, with the question of how much money to provide the military. Real quick, uh, what am I missing? Emily, What's what else is on your radar this week in Congress? I am still really waiting to see if we get a text of either the bipartisan infrastructure plan mm -hmm. or the Democrats' budget resolution. Just a reminder for everyone who's not in the weeds every day in Washington, you keep hearing about that four trillion, six trillion, two trillion, three trillion, whatever trillion reconciliation package that is still in the works. For that to be done, they first must pass a budget resolution, and we have been expecting to see the details on that come out. We saw a draft, a six trillion dollar proposal. Of course, some Democrats want a little bit less, so we're looking for the actual text on that to appear. So you know, devil's always in the details on on these types of things, and and that's what we'll be looking for here. Right, uh, busy uh, beginning of a busy week here. Uh, that's just about it for us. Thank you again to Justin Sink, Bloomberg White House reporter who walked us through everything we wanted to know about Cuba. Aaron Brown, who wrote that piece that you can find on the Bloomberg terminal uh, on the Pelosi uh, uh, investment issue that's been in the news. And of course, to Jenna Griswold, the Colorado Secretary of State for walking us through voting rights. That's it for me and Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.